It's funny that he said, I'm going to teach something you haven't heard before. Um, Actually, my goal today is to review the basics of biblical manhood. Um, So hopefully you'll have a couple things you haven't heard before. Uh, You don't have a bulletin, which is weird for me because I operate off those. But um, the title of my message this morning is The Practice of Biblical Manhood in Light of Our Current Culture. And so we'll, we'll cover both those things. But before we really get going, let's go ahead and pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for uh, the delights of fellowship together with food and with the men of this church and the, the, the fun that we enjoy and the, the fellowship. And now, Lord, to turn our eyes uh, toward the Word of God, particularly this morning to turn our eyes toward what it means to be a man in a culture that now truly hates biblical manhood. <clears throat> this is no longer an agree-to-disagree situation. Um, we are considered the enemy by the world, and they have drawn up battle lines against Christ, against God, against the Bible, and by default against us. And so, Lord, we desire, as aliens and strangers in a foreign land, uh, we desire, Lord, to be men that are pleasing to you, that look not to our culture for any sort of guidance, but look solely to the Word of God to see what it means to be a man that is pleasing to you. And we pray that this morning would help us toward that end. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So we'll start off, first of all, in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, verse you're familiar with. And this morning will be probably a little bit more like a Bible study because we're going to bounce around a little bit for a while. And while you're finding 1 Corinthians 16, once upon a time there was a day when manhood... That idea was basically agreed upon between Christians and non-Christians. That there is general agreement. Uh, manhood was tied into necessary ideas like work ethic and leadership and chivalry and honor and protection and provision. And all those things were something that, that men in our culture generally agreed upon. Now, that's not the case anymore. The battle lines are, are, are beginning to become wider and more clear, and in fact, absolutely destructive. But I want to just kind of start our thoughts and get our minds going in this direction because it takes some time after sweet rolls and sausage and eggs to get our brains going again. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, very familiar. Probably some of you have this memorized. The Apostle Paul in his final goodbyes to the church at Corinth in this letter, he says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, Act like men, be strong. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Now, we want to be as accurate as we can. When he says act like men, primarily what he's saying is be spiritually mature. Stop being children. Stop acting like a child. But even if that's what he means, did you notice the metaphor, the word picture that he uses to depict maturity and being a grown-up spiritually? being a man that there is a manliness to this there's a responsibility to it but i want to spend a few minutes talking to you first of all about our culture because there's there's three massively destructive social movements that i think have just chopped the knees out from under um, real biblical manhood and by the way uh, as i said it used to be that we could sort of agree to disagree but now now we went to a cultural war but now the war has stakes that are even higher because it's, it's a war in which now there's a fight for the control of laws and, and penalties for breaking those laws. In other words, there will be a day, and it's coming faster than I, I, I thought it would, but there will be a day when you will be penalized by the legal authorities of our nation for believing the wrong thing according to their standards. So I want to spend a few minutes on this because you have to be understanding what you believe so that you go to jail for something that's right uh, if you're going to. But I want to give you just three massively destructive movements. And the first one is no surprise, but that is the radical feminist movement, which really gained steam in the 60s and 70s. I've talked about this before. I think it's worth rehearsing this history just a little bit. Um, I would argue that a lot of the accepted norms for family life, the accepted norms for uh, what men are supposed to do, what women are supposed to do, that we think today 
is quote-unquote normal. It came from the original agenda of the modern feminist movement. And, and just so you understand, feminism was never, it was not ever, not one time, was it just about a so-called liberation of women from the oppression of staying home and being a wife and a mother. That was never what that was about. It was never about uh, just women who wanted to get out of the house more to earn more extra income for their family. That's not what the feminist movement was about. It was never about just wanting to pursue a career over and above pursuing a God-given role as a wife and a mother. And it was never just about freedom from duties to your husband and children and home life. So if it wasn't about all those things that, that we're generally taught in the mainstream media that feminism is really about, what was the original agenda of the modern feminist movement over the last 50 years, and which is now accepted as so normal that we don't even know it's an aberration? The original hoped-for impact on society, which has been in large part successful, was the destruction and the tearing apart of the traditional family unit. That was their agenda. It still is. Feminist leader by the name of Sheila Cronin wrote, Since marriage constitutes slavery for women, it is clear that the women's movement must concentrate on attacking this institution. Freedom for women cannot be won without the abolition of marriage. Now, nobody's managed to abolish marriage yet, but they've expanded the definition of marriage such that it doesn't mean anything anymore. In the document called The Declaration of Feminism, November 1971, this is still to this day the official agenda of feminism, and they still refer back to this. This is their Bible, so to speak. The writers wrote, quote, The end of the institution of marriage is necessary for the liberation of women. Therefore, it is important for us to encourage women to leave their husbands and not live individually with men. All of history must be rewritten in terms of opposition of women, we must go back to ancient female religions like witchcraft. That's the original intent of feminism. Mary Jo Bain, one-time associate director of the School Center for uh, Research on Women, she wrote, in order to raise children with equality, we must take them away from their families and communally raise them. Vivian Gornich, a feminist author, she wrote, being a housewife is an illegitimate profession. The choice to serve and be protected and placed toward being a, fi a family maker is a choice that shouldn't be. The heart of radical feminism is to change that. Another feminist author named Kate Millett in her book, Sexual Politics, she wrote, The care of children is infinitely better left to the best trained practitioners, those who have chosen it as a vocation. This would further undermine family structure while contributing to the freedom of women. Do you understand they're just openly saying we want to undermine the traditional family? Linda Gordon, another feminist writer, she wrote, The nuclear family must be destroyed. Whatever its ultimate meaning, the breakup of families is now an objectively revolutionary process. No woman should have to deny herself any opportunities because of her special responsibilities to her children. And so... The real feminist agenda is, is not anything about equal pay. It's not about career pursuits. It's a satanic attack on God's created order meant to completely brainwash women and, by the way, men into destroying the biblical family unit. That Now that's the oddity. 30 years ago in the church, we would have said, well, that's their agenda, but praise the Lord that families are standing strong. That's not the case anymore because now that agenda has woven its way into the church such that, that divisions and controversies happening all over, the par all over the place, it has been attack, an attack that has been basically successful. Now, the idea that we ignore our culture and simply live by the standards of Scripture, if we say that, we're considered out of step, we're inconsiderate, we're uh, unsophisticated, and since the world system has done such a great job of guiding us throughout the centuries, right? And since we can really count on the prevailing winds of popular culture to direct our lives and create our values, we should just really listen and put our ear to the ground to see what the world is saying. I, the louder the world is, the more we have to plug our ears. There's a second major social phenomenon that's undercut biblical manhood. Again, not a surprise, 
we'll call this one the normalization of homosexuality. The normalization of homosexuality. Even unbelievers in the psychology world used to label homosexuality as a psychological disorder just a few decades ago. Now, we, we disagree with that assessment. It is not a psychological disorder. It's a sin because Scripture defines it as a sin. The so-called evidence put forward by advocates of homosexuality as being normal, it's not evidence at all. There is no scientific empirical evidence whatsoever that homosexuality is normal. All they have is anecdotes and enough thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people saying, this is the way I am, and they call that evidence. But no one has studied the effect of someone saying that they're born gay and encouraging all the behaviors associated with being gay. Nobody studied that. It's just assumed that since somebody says, this is the way I am, that we need to be respectful and let that be okay. And those who subscribe to this idea have pushed, the, pushed really, really hard the idea of sexual orientation. Did you, did you even know that sexual orientation, that concept used to be a debate? It's not even debated anymore. Everybody, even Christians, use the term, well, his sexual orientation is that he is homosexual. What that meant is that a person has no choice, so society should accept this normal as be, this behavior as normal. In fact, they present discovering and living out your sexual identity, so to speak, as really the ultimate in self-actualization. And showing that you've really evolved to the highest level. And they're, they're highly praised. When was the last time in the news that you saw anybody in the news say, we're, we're highlighting this family because this is a man married to a woman who has children. You don't see that. But you see highlighted homosexual behavior. It's now normal. And we don't agree with this, but just as an observation... Uh, when I was in elementary school, if a kid said he was gay, he usually went home missing a couple teeth. And we don't agree with that, but that was the perception was that that was odd. Now you're a hero. And now you're, you're venerated. And now homosexuality isn't just normalized in the culture, it's normalized in the church. And this is where we've crossed some really weird lines because now there's a whole group of those claiming to be evangelicals who say, yes, homosexual behavior is wrong, but I can still be gay in my heart and be a Christian as long as I don't act on it. That's normal now in evangelical circles. But as many have pointed out, just the claim to be born a certain way doesn't negate the standard of God. If someone says, I'm born with a propensity to lie all the time, that's who I am, we don't say, well, good for you for being the liar. It doesn't excuse the sin. And so that has undercut biblical manhood. And now um, it is almost, it, you're almost lifted up and, and venerated and held up as an idol if you as a man can act as or more feminine than a woman does. And you're, you're held up to be sophisticated and you're androgynous and you're a, you're a hero and you're really in touch with your inner female sort of a thing. There's one more thing that the church has, happen, has had happen that cuts the knees out from biblical manhood, and this one is a lot newer, and that is what I'll, I'll call the gender reassignment epidemic. The gender reassignment epidemic, because liberal culture has so indoctrinated people into the idea that the gender that you are born as is not necessarily the gender that you really are, and again, this is the idolatrous obsession with finding your identity now, if a little boy starts poking around in his sister's closet and puts on a dress and her shoes or plays with traditionally girl toys, everyone says, oh, he identifies as a girl. Just recently, a divorced couple just in the last month was fighting for custody of their twin sons. And mom, who's a pediatrician, decided that one of the boys should be reassigned to be a girl. And to start uh, hormone therapy and eventual surgery, dad fought to keep her from doing so. Thankfully, the court decided that both parents have to make the decision. And if they can't agree, then they stay the way it is. So we praise the Lord for that. 
And, and so now, if you say that the Bible defines homosexuality as sin, and that Genesis 2 says that God created mankind, male and female, that gender is established in the womb, not by your emotional leanings, now we're on the same level as white supremacists and neo-Nazis and so forth. Now, we don't say this to point fingers at the hurting people. We're going to create two categories here briefly. There are the categories of people who are aggressively pushing a wicked agenda. And then there's the other 99% who are simply the victims of falsehood and lies. Who believe the lies that they hear that if I could just somehow figure out my sexual identity, I'll feel good and I'll be a whole person at that point. And so there are hurting people looking for identity. And, and yes, some boys seem to tend to have feminine tendencies. And yes, some girls seem to have masculine tendencies. And so we hurt for those who are desperately looking for temporal happiness through their sexual identity. But the only way they're going to find true peace is by making peace with God. It doesn't matter what their leanings are. It doesn't matter what their struggles are. Understanding that they were born into a sinful world with a sin nature. And that sin nature comes in a lot of different flavors. And yes, for some, the sin they will battle in their life is homosexuality. Yes, for some, the the sin they will battle is even the idol of thinking that being a different gender will make me happy. And so a Christian with those tendencies will battle sin just like we have sins that we battle. You have sins you battle. Some of you battle the sin of lust. And you will for your whole life. Some of you battle greed. And you will for your whole life. Some of you battle impatience. Some of you battle laziness. Until Christ transforms you into the perfect likeness of himself. And so because of this culture war which is raging all around us. I felt like we should just here with our men. We should just pour some concrete. And firm up our basic foundation of what it means to be a Christian man. And this isn't just for your sake. This is because you have, you have sons and you have grandsons and you need to be an influence and you need to shield them and you need to tell them what you hear from everyone else around you is, is a lie. It's trash. You need to listen to what the scripture says. Now, just so you know, the things I'm going to say this morning would be characterized by that small group of people pushing a wicked agenda. This would be characterized as hate speech. Because anytime you disagree with those pampered, wimpy, crying, outraged, spoiled progressives, they accuse us of hate speech. And the only reason is, is because they're too wimpy to engage in, an, in a logical argument, much less a theological argument. They won't do it. They, they engage in trickery and in rhetoric, but not in actual logic. But the things I'm going to say this morning are really just what the Bible says. So their fight is not with us, not with me. Their fight is with God. And their fight is with the word of God. And now God will certainly vindicate himself, either now or in the future. And so as husbands, as fathers, as grandfathers, it's up to you to model and to influence because there are fewer and fewer role models. It has to come from within the church. It used to be, even when I was a kid, uh, yeah, you had your Christian role models, but you also had your, you also had your, your athletes and you had uh, other men in society you could generally point to as decent role models for manliness. Not anymore. That's not the case anymore. Now, none of this is going to surprise you, um, but I'm going to stand meekly in the great shoes of the Apostle Peter who said in 2 Peter 1, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. I want to stir you up by way of reminder. And so these are things probably you've heard, but this is one time in in our generation we need to pour this concrete deeply and again and again. So to organize our thoughts, I just want to examine the what, the why, and the how of biblical manhood and just kind of hit some mountain peaks kind of in Bible study fashion. So we'll do what, why, and how. First of all, what is biblical manhood? Now let's go to the other side of the Bible, Genesis 1, very familiar passage to us. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and if you've been coming on Sunday evenings for our study of the Pentateuch, you know that we take these three verses as what I've called the, the central directive, which is really the theme and the purpose of the entire Bible, the theme and purpose of the Pentateuch, but, but even more holistically of the whole Bible. And that is that uh, mankind is created by God to live with God, 
to rule the earth alongside God under his ultimate authority. And that is the, that's the purpose of humanity. But from this text, we can make some observations about biblical manhood as well. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I just want to make some observations from this text. I'm not going to go into as much detail as I would love to do, but specific to biblical manhood. So first, we're going to make some observations, and I'm going to build a little definition of what biblical manhood is. So these won't feel uh, related to one another, but we'll tie them all together here in a minute. Basic observations. First of all, when he says, let us make man, that's a Hebrew word you're familiar with, Adam. Adam is named after this idea. But it's the term for humanity. And really, throughout the Old Testament in Hebrew, the term Adam is used more for humanity, for mankind, than it is for a male. And so it really is very much representative. Uh, It does mean maleness in, in other places. But when it's used officially, it represents all humanity. And that's taken in our culture now to be somewhat of a a denigration to women. That's not the intent at all. It's just a language usage which developed over time. And so Adam, man, just means humanity. Another observation, humanity is a reflection of the Trinity. Humanity is a reflection of the Trinity. You notice the plurals for God and the plurals for humanity in verse 26. Um, Obviously, we can't build an entire doctrine of the Trinity just based on this verse. We have all of Scripture to help us do that. But the the plural for God here, without going into other arguments, um, is set in very clear parallel to the plural for mankind. Now, the parallels only go so far, but what is the same is that just as God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are all equally God, so men and women are equally human. You can't take that parallel super far, but that's the basic idea. We are a reflection of the Trinity. And so in reality, the most accurate reflection of the Trinity is a man and a woman together. That's the the greatest reflection. Here's another basic observation. God is the determiner of gender, and there are only two. They seem to be growing all the time. Have you been into a restaurant that has on the restrooms a symbol of a man, symbol of a woman, and then one that's kind of cut in half? It's like kind of uh, whatever you think you are at this moment, then that's fine. But God is the determiner of gender. There's only two. Male and female, he created them. He created them. This is a perfect verb in Hebrew. It means once you're male, you're always male. There's no intent to change that. You don't get a choice. And by the way, even secular psychologists have believed this for years and years, that maleness and femaleness is vital to our personhood. That your personhood is not separated from your gender. And some will even try to say that gender just doesn't matter. Well, it matters a great deal. It's part of who you are. It's integral to who we are and this identity is provided for, by, for us by God. Somebody says, I'm trying to find who I am. That's easy. You're a man and you have certain roles, certain responsibilities, certain duties. You, there's nothing left to find. There's another basic observation. The male is given the place of leadership and dare I say it, predominance. The male is given the place of leadership and predominance. Now, don't misunderstand. This is not a difference in essence. It's certainly not a difference in worth. We've already established that. It's just that in God's economy, then there is a a leadership role. There's a predominance role. In fact, the precise word of God says, male and female, he created them. Noting that God created Adam first and then the woman And by the way, we should note that this leadership, this predominance in looking at the whole of Scripture start to finish, it extends to the home, 
male leadership. It extends to leadership in Israel, male leadership in the Old Testament, and it extends to the church in the New Testament, male leadership. There's never a precedent for a normalized female leadership in any of those contexts. In fact, even the titles male and female, we see the place of leadership. The Hebrew word for male, zakar, it just means, it means more specifically a memorial or to remember. Now, what is that speaking of? When it says you're a male, to remember, to a memorial. Well, it's the idea that it's through the male that parents and grandparents and great-grandparents are remembered. Whose name do you have? You have your father's name. Who had his father's name? Who had his father's name? It's through the male that your parents are remembered. What does female mean? Well, basically, it just means the other gender that's not male. It's just the opposite. Here's another observation. And this has a therefore with it. Therefore, the male is given predominant responsibility as well. It's not th- just that we get to walk around saying we're in charge. We have predominant responsibility. And how do we know this? Who sinned first? Anybody remember? Adam or Eve? Eve. Who gets all the responsibility for the sin of mankind? Adam. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two. In Adam all die. And that must feel a little unfair to him. But that's too bad. He's the man. Suck it up. Right? He is responsible. Another observation. Both male and female are created in the image of God. And they reflect this image together. I've already alluded to this somewhat. But verse 28 gets us to marriage really fast. It gets us to marriage pretty quickly. They're meant to have children. They're meant to have grandchildren. They're meant to be a unit. Mankind was made for marriage. Marriage was made for mankind. It's a a great deal. Humanity most vividly reflects the image of God in the context of marriage. One more observation. Then we'll put together a definition. In the context of marriage, God has delineated distinctive roles. There are distinctive roles. The expanded commentary on the creation of the woman explains this. Look with me at Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. The helper is the woman. She's to provide companionship. She's to provide help to her husband. And the man is to provide care and security for his wife. Genesis 2, 24, second to last verse of the chapter. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Who's doing the holding fast? Literally in Hebrew, stick. The man is. He is committed to her. He has he is wrapped her in his arms and he is caring for her. It's a lifetime of devotion and dedication. And by the way, um, biology alone continues to shout out the fact that God has created distinctive roles because no matter how badly liberals want to redefine gender, no matter how these pitiable people who want to be gay or lesbian or bisexual or queer, which today means basically I am sexually whatever I think I am right now and I'm not going to define it, No matter how people want to define gender, it still takes a biological man and a biological woman to make a baby. Biology itself screams out God's intended differing distinctive roles. And frankly, even unbelieving sociologists who study societies and how they function, they consider that a basic function of a society is to provide stability to its people and to perpetuate itself. Does that make sense? Stable and growing. And both those functions happen where? In the traditional family. Just a few decades ago, homosexuality was broadly considered by sociologists something harmful to society. That's, these aren't even Christians. These are just sociologists that say homosexuality is not good from a sociological standpoint for a group of people. One really important scholarly paper concluded, quote, Homosexuality is a form of social deviance. In other words, it hurts the society that it's in. And so God very clearly created distinctive roles in the context of marriage. Okay, that's just a bunch of observations. 
Let me put together for you a definition of biblical manhood, kind of squeezing all those down together. I'm going to give it to you about three times here. Biblical manhood, we'll start easy, is being a biological male. All right, I can, I can handle that one. A biological male who reflects, in part, biblical manhood is being a biological male who reflects, in part, the Trinity. Created to lead and carry responsibility. So biblical manhood is being a biological male who reflects in part the Trinity, created to lead and carry responsibility in general and to lead and nurture in marriage in particular. To lead and nurture in marriage in particular. All throughout scripture, it is very difficult to separate manhood from marriage. Those two go together. Biblical manhood is being a biological male who reflects in part the Trinity created to lead and carry responsibility in general and to lead and nurture in marriage in particular. So that's the what of biblical manhood. And it's so clear. I'm just reading just those three verses. It is deeply entrenched into what the Lord would communicate to us. So let's look at the why. Why do we pursue biblical manhood? And before we get into this, I think now is the time to say up front that ultimately a man cannot be a biblical man until he's submitted in repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I, mean, that's, I, I know in our circles that may seem obvious, but the admonition we started with, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. What does act like men go right next to? Stand firm in the what? In the faith. And so that's, you, you can try all you want as an unbeliever to emulate what the Bible says about manhood, but ultimately you will still pay the penalty for your sin. So biblical manhood ultimately can only be labeled with a, uh, with a believer in Christ. But why should we pursue biblical manhood? Why should we stand for biblical manhood, teach it, uphold it, defend it? Why should we push back against our culture? In other words, what's our motivation? What's your motive? Well, I'm going to take some time to work our way to the motivation. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. And we'll examine that just briefly to answer this question. Let me give you a little history. In the late 1980s, a group of evangelical leaders began meeting in an attempt to define biblical manhood and womanhood. And they formed the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And the result was what they called the Danvers Statement, only because they met in Danvers, Massachusetts. So they called it the Danvers Statement. And I have a copy of it for every one of you. Just come up and get one uh, when we're done, and and I'll remind you. This is an important statement um, because it it really delineates um, what biblical manhood and womanhood is. It delineates the, the concerns that led to this study. But at the same time, lesser known... Another organization formed called the Christians for Biblical Equality. Same exact time, same years. They sought to deny many truths in Scripture and they came out with their own statement that they called Men, Women, and Biblical Equality. I do not have a copy of that one because it's not even good for setting on fire. Basically, they made the mistake of mixing up worth with equality. Now, what do I mean? All human beings possess worth as those created in the image of God, but all human beings are not created equal. Now, that sounds, I'm going to get shot just for saying that. But let me explain. The first statement in Men, Women, and Biblical Equality says, quote, the Bible teaches the full equality of men and women in creation and in redemption. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? In redemption, yes. In creation, no. A man is not equal to a woman, and a woman is not equal to a man. That's about the first thing you discover when you're about seven years old and you walk into your your sister's room by accident and go, okay, that's not like me. The first time you change a diaper that's a different gender than you, okay, that's not like me. No, they are not equal. There's clear differences, and anyone can observe that. Christians for Biblical Equality, in their position statement, they say this, quote, The Bible teaches that the forming of woman from man, when God took rib from Adam and formed Eve, 
demonstrates the fundamental unity and equality of human beings. In Genesis 2, 18 and 20, the word suitable denotes equality and adequacy. What are they talking about? They're referring to the word that in the ESV uh, is translated a helper fit for him, which literally in Hebrew means a helper opposite him, like a mirror image, the same and yet different. That does speak to the uniform worth of both men and women, but it also speaks to the mirror image differences. This uniform worth is seen in the following verses when God takes a rib from Adam to form the woman. But if this group, the Christians for Biblical Equality, if they were trying to understand what the whole Bible teaches about this issue, they would not use that one text alone. Because there's only one place in the whole other rest of the Bible that uses that Genesis passage. And it uses it to show that a wife is to give evidence that she agrees that her husband is the leader. That place is in 1 Corinthians 11. It's a massively important text which the Christians for biblical equality literally ignore. It's the only other cross-reference and they ignore it. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. This is so important. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. What a powerful verse. And oh, how feminists have wanted to obscure and use bad hermeneutics to say that the Greek term for head means source, as in the man was the source of the woman since she was created from the man. Now, where do you run into problems there? Because obviously then you'd have to say that God is the source of Jesus Christ. And we would never say Jesus was created from the Father. Now you're into heresy. So, of course, we're not going to say that. By the way, the Ill- illegitimacy of taking head as source, that's been proven, disproven by so many scholars that, that it's really not even a legitimate argument anymore. So what does the Christian woman do then? Verse 7, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, don't get hung up on the head covering part. That's missing the point. In all likelihood, Paul is referencing a a well-known custom or, or local practice, but it had a universal purpose which goes across time, across all ages in principle. For the woman in Corinth... Covering your head meant you endorsed your husband's leadership. And it reflected the state of your heart. So today, does that mean whether a woman should cover her head or not? That's missing the point. In her heart, she should be endorsing her husband's leadership. And did you notice her motivation? Because of the angels. I think the greatest statement, commentary on that little verse, that little section I've ever read, is from Dr. MacArthur And he says, quote, These messengers are God's protectors of his church over which they stand perpetual guard. It is proper for a woman to cover her head as a sign of subordination because of the angels in order that these most submissive of all creatures will not be offended by non-submissiveness. Furthermore, the angels were present at creation, Job 38, 7, to be witnesses of God's unique design for man and woman and would be offended at any violation of that order. Now, you might say, that's a little weird. A woman submits to her husband because of the angels. That's not the only place in Scripture where we're to be concerned about what the angels think. Ephesians 3, 9, and 10 says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God has been made known to whom? To the angels. That we're supposed to make the wisdom of God known to them by the demonstration of our lives. that's That's a tremendous responsibility. Matthew 18.10, Jesus himself says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, don't make a little kid's angel mad. So a woman is to care about the created order because she loves the Lord and respects and reveres God's created order. Now, what do we usually do as men with 1 Corinthians 11? We throw it at the women, right? Forget that. Forget that. Look to yourselves. What is your motivation then to pursue biblical manhood? 
that biblical manhood is God's created order. By implication, the same angels who are offended when a Christian woman is rebellious against God's created order would also be offended when a man refuses to operate by God's created order. And so what's our motivation? Very simple. It is loving submission to God's design. Who is called to submit, men or women? Yes, we submit to God's design. And, and you may say, well, that's, that, that's, that's easy. You know, everybody wants to be in charge. You know how many couples I've seen in marriage counseling where one of the major problems is a passive, leaderless husband? Almost all of them. Because the curse from Genesis 3 has made women want to take over and men want to abdicate. And we have to flip-flop it. Well, that's the what and the why of biblical manhood. Let's get practical to finish our time up. I just want to make a list of the hows of biblical manhood. And this may seem obvious to us, but our culture really no longer thinks they're obvious. So I'm just going to give you a few one-word reminders. Easily brought out from our definition of biblical manhood. I'm, I'm just doing four. I narrowed it down from like 20, but I didn't think we wanted to be here quite that long. So we'll just do four. None of these are rocket science. Most of these are fairly simple, but I believe we are simple creatures um, and we, we need to keep it down to one word. Number one, provide. Provide. That's not rocket science, but that's not normal in today's church. That is not normal. Now, the responsibility for provision is seen to be, normally speaking, the man and the woman's responsibility. I am not speaking to the issue of whether a woman should work outside the home or not. That's not the issue I'm talking to. What I'm talking to is, regardless of that, it is a man's responsibility. 1 Timothy 5.8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, we want to be precise here. The pronoun translated, if anyone does not provide, it's vague. It is a masculine pronoun, and the rest of the verse matches with this, with his relatives, his household. But there is room to include women, because if you're including both genders with a pronoun, generally it's masculine, whether it means a man or men or women. And so it would be right to expect that, for example, an unmarried woman of some means... If she had the ability to provide for her extended family, it's her responsibility to do so, if she's able to do that. It does not mean, however, that when compared to a man, and especially in marriage, that a man and a woman have equal responsibility to provide. It doesn't mean that. It can't mean that, because it would deny elsewhere in Scripture. The role of the man as a provider is a clear implication of the definition we established from Genesis 1. I I have heard both men and women who I believe have fantastic hermeneutics and their ability to exegete scripture is is just out of this world, suddenly get to Proverbs 31 and see a woman who has a cottage industry and occasionally leaves the home to go make money in a real estate business say, see, she's working outside the home. It doesn't say that. If we get drill deeper into that text what it says she's doing is taking the money that her husband has earned and reinvesting it to make it work harder that there's a team effort this is not husband is doing one thing wife is doing something totally different this is a family business again i'm not speaking to that issue that is a matter of conscience and there is there is some a lot of gray there but one thing i will not do is let the culture exegete scripture for us we can't do that and so, uh, uh, you know, uh, young people, you might, you might, young men, you might meet a young woman and, and you come to an agreement that um, she has some skills or she has some education and she wants to use that education. Great, fabulous. You're still responsible at any time. What I wish young women would do is test their husbands and say, uh, I've decided that I'm no longer going to earn. Have at it. What should your response be? It should be Okay. You know what my wife did the day she found out she was pregnant with our first child? She resigned from her teaching job on the spot. You know what I did when I found out she was pregnant? I had a full-on anxiety attack. (laughs) I completely fell apart. And to this day, 
27 years later, that's a small source of contention because she was happy and I was, I was sweating bullets because all of a sudden it was on me. Provide. There's another one word reminder. Protect. Protect. I know most of you don't carry swords. What does it mean to protect? First Peter 3, 7 calls the wife the weaker vessel. Speaking of a broad generalization of physical strength. That's basically what it's talking about. And it certainly in no, ways, no way implies that some women can't very ably take care of themselves. Uh, some years ago when I, was, I hadn't been at Grace Bible Church very long, I needed to tear open an envelope and I was standing amongst a group of young ladies all related to each other in a family name that I shall not mention. And I said, does anybody have a knife? And like eight of them came out in a second. I thought, this is the best armed group of females I've ever seen in my life. I felt so safe. I felt cared for. But there's a broader implication and an application when putting this together with the responsibility of a husband to lead. The idea of protecting is that you don't make a woman do battle. You don't make a woman do battle of any kind, by the way, including with you. You don't make her do battle with you. If you know you're 110% certain that you're right and your wife thinks she's right, stop and just let her do whatever she needs to do and run out of steam. And if your wife is emotional and she tends to do things which express emotion and that makes you cry, too bad. Deal with it. She should not do battle with you. She should not do battle with others. She should not do battle with the world. When you get a, 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 a wrong charge on a bill and you get a bill for $500 that shouldn't be, don't hand it to your wife and say, would you call and battle this? You take it. You take the heat. When it's 20 below outside, don't hand the car keys to your wife and say, go put gas in the car. You go freeze your fingers off. You protect Make her feel like a woman. You know what the you know what a, a concept that has been lost in our culture, ironically, by the very people who fight for so-called women's rights is chivalry. Chivalry. It's an old but a biblical concept. Here's a third one-word uh, reminder: relate, relate. I just made half of you very uncomfortable because some of you are saying, "Well, I'm just not built to be touchy-feely and relational." And when somebody says to me, let's talk, I'd rather say, let's build something. Let's, let's do something. Let's blow something up. Uh, anything, but let's talk. And, and, and I have heard husbands say, if you say, let's talk, I panic. If you say, let's wash the cars, I can handle that. So somebody says, well, I'm just not built that way. I think that's a lie our culture has told us because everybody is built to be relational. Some of us just have to work harder at it than others. That's okay. I want to apply this first to marriage, but then I want to apply it to people in general. Let's apply it to marriage. First Peter 3, 7, familiar with this verse. It says we're to live with our wives in an understanding manner. It means we understand them. How do you understand them? It means you communicate with them. I'm going to give you a little test. Let me give you the background to the test. It's a one-question test. Here's the background. Song of Solomon 1, verse 6. A young maiden engaged to be married says to her beloved, Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. She's basically saying, Oh, I look terrible. Don't look at me. Okay, here's the quiz. The right response is A, yeah, you kind of do look terrible. B, oh, I've seen you look worse. Or C, you will always be beautiful to me. One, two, three, C. Okay, good. By the way, Scripture proves this to be the right answer. You know what the young man answered? He said to his sunburnt, calloused wife-to-be, you are, quote, the most beautiful among women. He's not only kind, he's smart. She was looking for affirmation, for affection, for relationship. What do we have a problem with? We have a problem with subtle communication. When your wife says, it's cold in here, what is she really saying? She's saying, will you get up and go get a blanket for me, please? Right? But we say, 
yeah, I think it is cold. And then we keep watching TV because we processed the information. We decided she was correct. And we said, good job. It is cold. (laughs) It's not what she's saying. She's wanting you. She's handing it to you on a silver platter. Would you be chivalrous without me having to say, I'm freezing. Would you please get up and get me a blanket? When she says, I'm freezing, engage the brain. Okay, if I was freezing, I would want warmth. Warmth come from blankets. I go get blankets. (laughs) She's looking for a relationship. Let me give you a challenge. We all agree that real men do hard things, right? Real men do the hard things. If being relational is hard for you, then do the hard thing. Let me give you three easy questions to ask that will always get a good conversation going. Number one, what's the biggest concern on your mind right now? 1A, and I really want to hear it. Because if your wife isn't used to you saying that, she might think it's some sort of ploy. (laughs) Second question, what can I do to serve you? Be careful. and She may give you a list, but that's okay. And third question, is there anything you've wanted to talk to me about that we haven't gotten to? Because your wife may be holding on and she may have a list of 19 things and she may whip out a notebook. And you go, okay, Lord, help me with this. But what do you do? You sit on the couch, you look her in the eye and you say, I have all the time in the world. And if we run out of time, we'll set another one. And if we run out of time, we'll set another one. Because you're my best friend and I don't care what anybody else thinks. We're gonna talk. And you know what? Guys who are, have difficulty with this, if you practice, just think of it as, as instructions. Okay, first, sit on couch. Second, look in eye. And third, smile. And fourth, listen. Just do it instructively like that. In marriage, make yourself be relational. If it's hard, then do it. Just do it. How about people in general? One of the things as a pastor that makes me sad is when I see men or women pick their one or two favorite people in the church and that's all they ever, those are the only people they ever hang out with. And what, what do we call those sometimes? Clicks. Makes the church unhealthy. Yeah, it's great. You have different levels of relationships. You're closer to some than to others. We understand that. But one of the qualifications of an elder in the church is to, is to, he's to be able to shepherd the flock of God among you. First Peter 5, in a way that isn't domineering. What does that mean? It means patience. It means thoughtfulness it means entering into difficult conversations at time with at times with care and gentleness even in grace bible church i am reminded that sheep are sheep and shepherds are shepherds when somebody sends me a letter and says this is a prophecy i've received from god on your behalf i'm like have you heard me teach anything in seven years and you just want to kind of beat them over the head with it but we don't do that we we teach And we continue to train. It means being gentle. Now, all of those things are qualifications of an elder, but it's something that uh, all men should aspire to. It means working to go deeper in your conversations. Look, if your habit is to be lazy, and I I can say that word with men, to be lazy and say, how are you doing? Fine, great, God bless you. If that's your habit, stop. How are you doing? Fine. Really? Really? I really want to know what's going on in your life. I've got five minutes. Give me three things to pray for. Have the discipline to go deeper and do it on purpose. Be vulnerable. Help others be vulnerable. Get outside your little circle. And and I've noticed even in our church, and this happens in a lot of churches, circles develop based on when you came to church. If you got here in 2013, you've got your circle. 2015, you got your circle. 2017, you got your circle. Expand your circle. Expand it. All right, one more. This one's obvious. Starts with an L and ends with Eid. Lead. I I am amazed at how many men have told me in counseling when I say you need to lead your wife. Well, that's not my gift. Yes, it is. Well, no, it's not. And I have said this to men, and I don't mind saying this to you. If you don't think leadership is your gift, I want you to go home, go in the bathroom, take your clothes off, look in the mirror. And then come back and tell me what you see. If you see something similar to what the rest of us have, you're a leader. That's how you're made. Let me tell you four places to lead. It doesn't mean that every man is equally gifted to lead other people. You are a leader at some level though. First level, lead yourself. 
Lead yourself. I have a 14, very soon to be 15-year-old daughter. And if in 20 years or so, when I will allow her to get married, if a young man was interested in her, and he invited me over to his apartment, and it was a mess, and he was never on time, I wouldn't let him near her. You want to know why? Because he can't even lead himself. I'm not going to entrust my daughter to him. He, he can't discipline himself. Why would I expect him to lead others? Leadership begins with making decisions about yourself in which, here's what it is, you're forcing yourself to do things you don't want to do. That's leadership. Do what you say you're going to do. If you have the reputation of continually not showing up, of canceling all the time, of being late for lame reasons, of not being dependable, by the way, you're not fooling anybody. Everybody figures it out pretty fast then you need to take time and I'm going to say it takes at least a couple years to reform your reputation. Lead yourself. Because if you can't lead yourself, you can't lead anybody else. But at the very least, that's what a Christian man does. We lead ourselves. You might not be gifted to lead great crowds of men. That's okay. Here's another place you lead, at work. Christian men ought to work to be the very best at what they do. Why is that? Because work is supposed to be, according to Scripture, a reflection of our faith, right? Colossians 3.22, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as as people pleasers, but sincerity of heart, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Doesn't mean you're the leader at work, but it means you lead in the way you work. Does that make sense? You lead by example. Here's a third place you lead, your home. You must prayerfully determine the priorities of your home. Uh, Babylon B, one of my favorite quote-unquote news sources, it had a, a deal that came out a couple months ago that, that said uh, something like, biblical man uh, defers all leadership, delegates all leadership to his wife. In other words, she makes all the decisions. That's not okay. That's not leadership. Yes, your wife is a major, major part of that discussion, but ultimately, it's your priority to keep the main things the main things. There's no one else doing that. If your family's life is too chaotic, that's your responsibility. If your family isn't spending enough time together, that's your responsibility. If your marriage isn't being nurtured, that's your responsibility. If your family isn't in the word and in family worship, that's your responsibility. Let let me teach you a word that you need to know to keep your family priorities on track. It is no. I'm not going to say yes to this. No. Here's another word that will be helpful to you. Calendar. Use your calendar. A lifestyle of continual spontaneity. You know what we call that? That's leaderless chaos. You should plan what you do. One more place to lead. This is obvious. The church. The church of Jesus Christ suffers because men won't lead aggressively. I'm I'm so proud of our deacons because... To a man, they take their responsibility seriously. They treat it like the kingdom work that it is. I'm thankful for them. But let me ask you this. What are you taking responsibility for in the church in which the buck stops with you? And it doesn't matter how big or little it is. It doesn't matter how big or little it is. You take ownership of something and lead something. I I love the fact that in, in the last few months, every Sunday morning, I get greeted by Adrian. And he's got territory that's his. And you can, he staked it out. It is his, and he owns it. Whatever it is, you own it, and you lead. You lead yourself. Provide, protect, relate, lead. Turn over a couple pages. We're going to finish off by reading this aloud. Back to 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. Read this with me. Here we go. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for these men. I pray, Lord, that you would help them in the spheres of influence in which you've placed them, in their homes, in their workplaces, in their church, whatever organizations they may be a part of but especially, Lord, in their own hearts. I pray for every one of us, that every one of us have some area where we could lead more effectively, where we could more aggressively trust you, where we could be stronger, 
where we could believe that the strength of the Spirit of God, which gives love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control would empower us to be the men that you would have us to be. I pray for our sons. I pray for our grandsons. I pray, Lord, that you would make them into men of God who stand against this godless, wicked culture that would redefine us out of existence. But we know that someday the one who called himself the Son of Man will return and he will set all things right. And we look forward to that day. In the meantime, help us to be faithful. We pray in Christ's name, amen.